Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to News from the Torah. Today is the 16th of March, the 13th of the Hebrew month of Adar Bet, the second Adar. This week is the Torah portion of Tzav. But more importantly than anything else, today is Tanit Esther, the fast of Esther, and the day before Purim. Tonight will be the joyous holiday of Purim. In just a few hours, we will all get dressed, put on our costumes, and go to the synagogue to hear the Megillah, the Megillah Esther, to hear the story of Purim. It's one of the mitzvot, one of the commandments of the day, to hear the Megillah twice, in the evening and then again in the morning. You cannot miss a single world of the Megillah. You have to listen carefully, carefully to it. It's one of the most joyous, beautiful holidays. And if you're not celebrating Purim, if you don't have Purim spirit, if you're alone, please, please reach out to your Jewish community, to your local Chabad house. They have a beautiful feast going on. They have a beautiful party going on. And they would love to welcome you. No Jew should be left alone on Purim. So please reach out to your local Jewish community, to your Chabad house, to your friends. Don't be too proud. Nobody should be left alone on Purim. And if you have a Purim celebration, please look around and find people around you who are alone and make sure to invite them over to you to have the celebration. doesn't matter what you have. It's just not being alone on Purim that is so important. Everybody, everybody deserves to be happy on this holiday. So today, on this segment, we will be talking about the lessons of Purim for our life. We'll be talking about the lessons of modern femininity that we can learn from Esther. That's during the first segment. But during the second and third segments, we'll be talking about the special power of Purim to tap into a place of godliness that you can only tap in through the power brought down by Esther. It's the place of super, supernatural. What does that mean? What does all of this say? How do we do this? All of this will be discussed on today's show. I promise you that after this show, after you listen to it, you will be looking at Purim in a whole new way. So as you're baking and cooking and getting ready for this holiday, please don't forget to watch out for your neighbors who need a place to go in Purim. And... Right after the break, we'll be diving into the meaning of Purim for today with news from the Torah. Our news on this day from the Purim Torah. See you on the other side of the commercial break. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. Welcome back. So before we go into the real story of Purim and the message of Purim that we can take with us into our life, 
I'd like to concentrate during this segment on the quality of Esther that I think really is something that is a bit of a lost art. If we look at the story of Purim, it starts out with a very tangential story, the story of Vashti, the previous queen, the queen that was disposed before Esther took the front seat. So Ahasuerush had this big feast as the king of Persia, and during this grandiose feast, he called to bring in Vashti, his queen, and the queen refused. So he was very annoyed and asked his advisors what should be done to her. And one of the advisors suggested that if you don't put her in her place, all the other women will also revolt against their husbands. So Vashti has to be put in her to her place, removed from being the queen, and we're actually told that she was killed off. And after that happened, Ahasuerus really missed her. So his ministers had another idea. Let's have a contest, a beauty pageant, and find a new wife for you. So after... Thousands upon thousands of young women were brought in front of Ahasuerus. He chose Esther to be his wife. But when Vashti takes on Ahasuerus head-on, the result is that there are laws that keep women small, absent, subservient. That was the result of the revolt. Revolution usually leads to reaction. And after Vashti was removed, the criteria for a good queen becomes a docile woman. And nobody was as docile and passive as Esther. She was an orphan. She was taken every which way. She doesn't ask for anything when she comes to this beauty pageant. She takes whatever is given to her. And much of the writing about Esther during this time isn't passive. She stays quiet because Mordecai tells her to do so. And even if she, after she's crowned, she continues to follow Mordecai's lead. She's a quiet, docile, passive girl who has been catapulted into a queenly position, but it's really a position with no power and no influence. She is eye candy for Hashverosh and his court. But all of that changes one day after the decree is passed. Once the decree is passed to kill off the Jews, then Mordechai tells Esther that she has to go in front of Ahasuerus and plead for her people. Now, Persia had a law that nobody could go into the king's in a chamber without being called, and whoever did go could face um, a death sentence. So Esther had to take a chance at her life by going to Ahasuerus without being called, and she actually had not been called for a month. But not only that, Esther really did not want to have a relationship with Ahasuerus, and obviously in the Torah, it's a forbidden relationship between a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish man. But so long as she was taken, it was really a case of rape. She was not a willing participant in this relationship. But once she goes there off her own accord, that's a different story. And really taking herself to face her raper, to go there, on her own, willingly, took tremendous, tremendous self-sacrifice that was probably even greater self-sacrifice than the self-sacrifice of endangering her life. So when Mordechai tells her that she is the only person who can save the Jewish people, Esther goes through a transformation. 
Not only is she not a docile, frightened girl anymore, but she takes initiative. And from that point on, instead of Mordechai telling Esther what to do, consistently throughout the rest of the Megillah, Esther tells Mordechai what to do. She takes the reins into her hands and she becomes a leader. Now, she's not the kind of leader that Washington wanted to be. She doesn't assert power. She asserts influence. And people start eating out of her hands. That's the big change. And it says in the Megillah, Esther needed to dress herself, to garment herself in royalty. Because without that, telling her to go in front of Arhashverosh was like telling a little frightened girl to stand before the United Nations and argue against the Iran deal. But once she closed herself, she garmented herself in royalty, she had that royal bearing, and she knew her worth, and she knew her ability, and then she could change reality by telling other people what to do, by influencing people to do her bidding. Instead of taking on the patriarchy like Vashti, she uses her emotional intelligence and her mouth to navigate the entire royal household where she wants it to go. So the first thing was to go to Ahasuerosh, and then Ahasuerosh sees her in his inner chamber. He understands that she's taking a huge gamble, she's taking a huge risk, and he is so curious to know what could it possibly be that moved Esther to take this risk for her life. And she says, oh, I would like to tell you, but please come to me for a feast together with Haman. And Ahasuerus is puzzled. For this, she risks her life. But he says, okay, I'll come. And obviously this request arouses some of his jealousy because it's not a tete-a-tete. It's not an intimate dinner between a husband and a wife. There's a third person that is brought into that, and that's Haman. But Esther takes that chance. And sure enough, Ahasuerus and Haman show up for this feast. And then Ahasuerus says, okay, what's next? Now what? What do you want? She says, oh, please come for another feast. She keeps being coy and polishing it off. And he is jealous and he's also curious. And she takes advantage of his emotions and plays off of his emotions. Until at the second feast, she springs up the fact that Haman wants to kill off her people. And Hashverosh is already mad enough at Haman with all this jealousy. And now there is obviously that interlude about the story of Mordechai in there. But basically Esther leads Hashverosh to make the decision that she wants. And he keeps asking, okay, now what? What do you want? I'll give you anything. Up to half a kingdom. Whatever you want, I'll give you. So this little docile girl, when she finds her leadership and she finds her power of influence, can actually influence King to do whatever she wants. It just shows the tremendous power that we all have, even the people that don't feel confident, feel insecure, don't think they can lead. If you find your power of influence, your emotional intelligence, you understand what the people around you want and think, you can lead people to different places. So Esther asks nicely, and she gets exactly what she wants. She treats Ahasuerus like a king, but she becomes the real ruler of the court until ultimately the once silent Esther kills off Haman with just the power of her mouth. 
That's a tremendous power that we all have, but I think it's a big lesson for us as women because today's society tells us that we're all the same. Men and women, we're all the same. And actually, men can become women and women can become men. And there's no difference. And to be worthy, women have to do what men do. And that will make us worthy. But I often wonder whether in the aftermath of this feminist revolution, we have lost that ability to supplement negotiate reality. To give people their space and dignity, yet channel things where we need them to go. To lead without seeming to lead. By equating equality with sameness, we as women have given up on a feminine leadership skill in favor of a masculine leadership style, and too often the result is reaction and conflict, just like it happened with Vashti. Our running away from conflict makes us feel insecure, but I'm seeing too many women and girls who have given up on their inner sense of royalty and self-worth. Because in the current climate, being who you are and sticking with your inner core is often equated with stepping on the toes of others and conflict. So we can't win. We can't be in the conflict because we don't want to be in that place. And we've lost the ability to use our feminine negotiation skills. I've given this class in my community and several women asked me what the inner royalty would even look like. How could they reclaim it? We don't even know where to start. But I think we need to redefine leadership. I think leadership means understanding where you want to go, understanding what's the vision, seeing the vision and being committed to it, not taking no for an answer and understanding that there are ways to get people there by understanding what they want and harnessing them to your vision, not through conflict, but through building consensus, building win-win from a strong place of worthiness and commitment you have a vision that's unique to you that god gave you that only you can have and you can get other people to support that vision of yours to be with you on it not through conflict not through fighting not through taking them face on not through crying about the patriarchy and complaining about your lot just see where you want to go just like esther did garment yourself in royalty Reclaim your inner leadership. And you can be Esther. This is a huge part of the story. And I know Purim can be very hard for women because there's a lot to do. There's a lot of activity going on that you're responsible for. But please don't let all that extraneous noise get in the way of connecting to the essence of the holiday. The essence of your worthiness. The essence of your leadership. The essence of your royalty. Nobody can take that away from you. But if you harness that today on Purim, if you tap into that power, you can take it with you into the coming days, weeks, and months. And you will need it so much by the time Pesach rolls around. Okay, stay tuned. And after the break, we will talk about a very different aspect of Purim. The super supernatural reality of the world. Stay tuned. Hi, 
Hi, everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show. Pull up a chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together, we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. Welcome back. So as we started discussing in the first segment, Esther is really the main character of this holiday. She's the main character of the Megillah. It's called after her name. And she's also the main character of the Purim holiday, even more so than Mordechai. And our sages keep saying that Purim is probably one of the most special days of the year. It has the light that no other holiday has. And after the coming of the Mashiach, in the days to come, other holidays will lose their meaning, they will lose their specialness, we will not be celebrating them, but we will always celebrate Purim. Moreover, Purim is said to be even holier than Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is also called Yom Kippurim. Kippurim. It's like Purim. So Purim is the real McCoy, and Yom Kippur is like Purim. So what does all of that mean? And what is the special power of Purim that we can all connect to? So another thing we need to understand is that when Mordechai comes to Esther and tells her that she has to step up to the plate and save the Jewish people, and she is not so sure about that, he says to her, if you stay silent at this time, salvation will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be lost. So what is this other place? What is he using the words place? He can say it's going to come from somebody else or somebody else will come up, step up to the place. But what is this other place? And why would Esther's father's house be lost? How is her father's house connected to this? So to answer all of these questions and to really understand the depth of Purim, I would like to bring here a teaching of the Slonima Rebbe on the Purim story. And he connects it to a different story in the Torah from which we can understand it. When the Jewish people left Egypt and went through the Red Sea, they come out on the other side and they start fighting God and they say, Is God among us or not? And that's a funny question to ask. Our sages say, wait, you just left Egypt. You just saw all these miracles. You just crossed the Red Sea. You're eating man. You have the clouds of glory covering over you. And you're asking, is God among us or not? What do you think? And they bring this parable of a father carrying a child on his shoulders. And the father steps over rivers and goes over mountains and climbs up trees. And this whole time, the child is sitting comfortably on the father's shoulders. Then the, the two of them run into a friend of the father. And the child asks the friend, Oh, have you seen my dad? And the father says, What do you mean? I'm here carrying you through all these challenges and you haven't seen me? So he throws the child on the earth. And then the child says, Oh, now that hurts. And the father says, Yeah, that's what happens when your father does not carry you on the, on the shoulders. 
So it's funny that the Jewish people would ask this question. But our sages explain that they actually asked a different question. And to understand that, we need to see that there are three levels of reality in the world. The first level of reality is the reality of the natural world. God created the world with nature, laws of nature, laws of biology and physics and chemistry, things we learn in school and in college. And this is the physical world that most people live in. The physical world in which 2 equals 2 plus 2 equals 4, and in which water freezes at 100 degrees, and the laws of nature as we know it. And you can't really change nature. You can't argue with nature. You can't hope for nature not to do its thing. So most people live in the world of nature. But certain people who have faith in God live in a world that's above nature. Think about it. What do people pray? What's the point of praying? If let's say somebody is sick, God forbid, so they take medication, and the medication does its work based on the laws of nature, and then the person gets better. So what's the point of prayer? The only point of prayer is to ask somebody who is above the world of nature to intercede and do things not based on the course of nature, but based on something else, based on your reality. It's a little bit similar to, let's say, if there's a special rule in the school about something, when there is somebody in the school, like, like the principal, who can override the rules. And you go and ask them to intercede and override the rule for you. So the same things is with our relationship with God. There is the natural world we usually live in, but if we have faith in God, then we can ask him to override the rules for us. But that's only if you're really truly emotionally connected to this reality of God, to this reality of above nature. And we connect to God and this reality above nature with our mouth, through prayer. Through our mouth and prayer, we create that emotional connection. So this aspect of the world, the world that's above nature, also many, many people can connect to. Everybody who believes in God, who believes in a reality that is spiritual, beyond the physical nature. All of us connect to that. We believe in that. This is why we're learning Torah. This is why we have this program every single week, because we believe that God runs the world. And there is a supernatural quality to the world of godliness. Godliness that permeates the world, and the world is just a cover-up for godliness. So that's a different plane that people can relate to. But there's a third plane. And that third plane is super, supernatural. In beyond the nature and beyond God who is beyond nature, there is God as he is in himself and by himself, not related to the world at all. Just pure godliness with no differentiation, no separation, not anything we can talk about as human beings. God as in God himself. It's a very high place that is really hidden from us. We have no relationship with it. We can't access it on day to day. That place is called Ayn. Ayn in Hebrew means non or no. It's called that way because we really can't access that space. We have no relationship with it. It's God as he is by himself. And we have no clue what that would even mean. We have no tools to talk about that. So it's a place we can't talk about. And the question is, how do you access that? How do you access that place? So our sages say that you access that place 
through self-sacrifice. It's important for me to say that when I talk about self-sacrifice, that can come only from the place of power and self-esteem and believing in yourself, not from a place of not from a place of being worthless or not counting yourself or not giving yourself what you need. You need to feel secure in who you are. And only after that, after there's a self, can there be self-sacrifice. Because very often people talk about self-sacrifice, but they do really don't have a feeling of self and they don't feel worthy. So they feel like they're this schmata, this something that people just step on all the time. That's not called self-sacrifice. That's called low self-esteem. But when a person is secure in who they are and they have self-esteem and they understand that they're worthy and important in the world, then from that place they can sacrifice that self because they understand that there's actually a higher cause, a higher purpose, something that's more important than who they are and what they are, the greater good. And for that greater good, they sacrifice themselves. And this is exactly what Esther did. She sacrificed herself by going to the king. So she really risked her life. But she also sacrificed much more than that by going to this person that she really hated and had no relationship with. And she was forcing herself to go and have an emotional relationship with this person. And that was the greatest self-sacrifice. So when a person sacrifices themselves and they have no interests, no interest in this world, but also no interest in the next world. Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik used to say that it is easy to die al Kedush Hashem. It is easy to sacrifice your life, but it is hard to live on Kedush Hashem. It is hard to live your life as a life of self-sacrifice for God. Because very often, People can sacrifice themselves from this thought that they will be holy and they'll have the next world and now they have this self-image. I can sacrifice myself and now I will be holy and God will really uh, think highly of me and I'll get this reward in the next world. But what Esther did, she sacrificed her this world and her next world. There was no interest there. She wasn't doing this to become holy or more elevated or more spiritual, she was sacrificing everything. And when the person can sacrifice everything, this world and the next world, with no interests involved whatsoever, with no calculations involved whatsoever, when a person really puts themselves as not, as none, then as a parallel, they can activate and connect to this place of iron, of this total undifferentiated godliness where there also no interest in calculations because when the interest in calculations so God can say I'm sorry you're not worthy of this of this salvation of this deliverance but when a person really puts everything on the line and they don't differentiate between interests they don't differentiate what works or what doesn't then they connect to that place in godliness as well because everything that we do in this world connects to a similar place in godliness. And this is exactly what Esther did. She connected to a place of godliness that brought down salvation from a place that no longer looked at the sins of the Jewish people, at what was uh, appropriate for them or not. It was a place of total commitment. And by being totally committed to God, she brought down from God a place of total commitment to the Jewish people. 
And after the break, I'd like to talk some more about this, understand where this meets us in our life and how we can apply that in our life. So please stay tuned right after the break. We'll take all these lessons and apply them to our life. Shalom, I'm Leah Haroni. Join me on my show, News from the Torah. Each Sunday, we'll use the weekly Torah portion as a prism for understanding the news today. Listen to News from the Torah to gain clarity about the times we're living in and to understand your own spiritual path in the process. News from the Torah every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. Welcome back. So during the previous segment, we talked about the self-sacrifice of Esther Mocha. And just to understand it better, I'd like to tell you a story. This story is told about the Baal Shem Tov. When he was traveling from Ukraine to Israel, he got stuck in Istanbul for quite a few, few weeks. And while in Istanbul, in Turkey, he was approached by a couple, and they asked him to pray for them that they would have a child. And the Baal Shem Tov looked at them and he understood that it was really not possible that this couple would never have children. So he told them he couldn't bless them. But this couple insisted and insisted and insisted and they would not take no for an answer. So the Baal Shem Tov looked at them and gave them a blessing that they would have a child. And they left and after that he had a vision that God told him that this couple was not supposed to have children. And now to fill this blessing, God had to change the order of history and the course of nature. So the Balshemtov would lose his next world. He would lose his reward in the world to come. And the Balshemtov was actually so happy about that that he said, That's great. Because until now, it could have been said, or I could have thought that I was serving God out of the interest because I want to be holy and I will get all this reward in the world to come. But now I can just serve God in order to serve God. No interests involved whatsoever. Not in this world, not in that world. I'm not getting anything for it. I'm just serving God because I love Him. Because I want to be in a relationship with Him. And I have nothing to gain from it. And obviously after that, His reward in the world to come was returned to him. So when we're talking about self-sacrifice, it's really doing the right thing because it's the right thing. And doing things that don't come naturally to us, things that we really have to turn ourselves inside out, not because for any claim, for any fame, for any acclaim, for any reward now or in the world to come, not to be holy, not to be elevated, not to be larger than life, just doing the right thing because it's the right thing, even if it means doing that at great personal expense. So over the past two weeks, I've seen a tremendous amount of people do just that. People who observe Shabbat, um, manning WhatsApp groups to help people in Ukraine escape, rabbis traveling 
including on Shabbat from community to community to make sure that people have food and they're taken care of. One of the rabbis told me, I don't remember what the prayer book looks like anymore. I haven't prayed in two weeks. I've been working around the clock to help people. That's real self-sacrifice. It's not just a self-sacrifice of doing the right thing, but it's setting aside one's needs, emotional, spiritual, religious, to be helping our brothers and sisters who are in this horrible predicament. That's true self-sacrifice. And this really explains all of the questions that we asked during the beginning of the previous segment. Why is Yom Kippur only like Kippurim? Because on Yom Kippur, only one person, the holy Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, who can reach this place of complete godliness by going into the Holy of Holies, to the pinnacle of connection between human beings and God. Only one person can do that. But on Purim, this energy of connection to the Ein, to the super supernatural, is available to all of us. Because once Esther did that and brought that energy down into the world, it is now available for everybody to tap in. We just need to understand that we can go beyond interest and calculations and the need for fame and acclaim and do the right thing in order to do the right thing, even at personal cost. This is now available to all of us and we can draw down that energy. Where do you find the energy, the possibility, the capability to do that? By connecting to the story of Esther and Purim. On Purim we can draw down that energy for the whole year. And also, why is Purim the only holiday that we will be celebrating in the future after Mashiach comes? Because every holiday is imbued with the power of the supernatural. Every power of the holiday is the power of that day. And the power of our holidays are the times when God intervened in human history to um, do things for the Jewish people. But that's the power of the supernatural. After Mashiach comes, in the times of the redemption, we will be living that every day. That's exactly what redemption is about. That instead of living in the physical world and just seeing the physical, we will be living in the physical world by seeing the spiritual, the supernatural that is now hiding behind the curtain. So the power of the holidays will be there every single day and the holidays will not be so special anymore. But the power of Purim, the super supernatural, that will also be special after the coming of Mashiach. That will always remain something to celebrate. So we will be celebrating Purim even after Mashiach comes. And why is Esther the main person of the story? Like we said, because she is the one who took that ability, who brought down that ability for everyone. And that is that special place when Mordechai tells Esther the salvation will come to the Jewish place for Jewish people from a different place. That place is the place of the super supernatural. It didn't come from a different person. It didn't come from a different place in this world. It came from a different place in the world to come. And Mordechai actually learned that from Moshe Rabbeinu. After the Jewish people sinned at the golden calf, then Moses went up to God and he said, please, please forgive this sin. And if not, then wipe me out of your book. That not right there is also written as ayin. 
So there are two ways you can forgive the Jewish people. Either you forgive them, or if not, I will access this place of Ein, of this complete self-sacrifice, and you, God, will have to bring out forgiveness from the place of complete autogodliness. And Moses told God, if you don't forgive the Jewish people, wipe me out of your book, out of your book of the holy people. Don't just wipe me out of the Torah, wipe me out of this world, but wipe me out completely because I have nothing to do here without the Jewish people. So it's either or. Either you forgive them or wipe me out. I'm not here if I cannot serve the Jewish people. And that self-sacrifice of of Moshe Rabbeinu was the um, example that Mordechai followed when he came to Esther and asked her to go to Hashverosh and plead with him to save the Jewish people. Now, in doing so, Esther really fixed the mistake of her forefathers because Esther comes from the house of Shaul. Shaul was the first king of the Jewish people and his job was to wipe out the Amalek. Amalek is the one eternal enemy of the Jews and he was supposed to wipe out all of the Amalek, all of the possessions, but he didn't. He did not have the leadership and he followed the lead of the people left Agag, the king of the Amalek, alive. And from Agag came Haman, Haman who decreed to wipe up all of the Jewish people. So here, by stepping up to the plate and having the leadership, Esther had an opportunity to fix a mistake made by one of her forefathers. And had she not done that, the entire heritage of the house of Shaul, you and your father's house, as Mordechai had put it, would have been lost forever. So now that we answered all of these questions, the question is, how can you access this power of Purim? Tonight, when you go to hear the Megillah, tomorrow when you go to hear the Megillah, when you give out Mishlochei Manot, when you have your Purim feast, and when you give money to the poor, these are this mitzvot of Purim. Once again, to read the Megillah, to give Mishloch Manot, to send food to your friends, to give money to the poor, and to have a feast, the four mitzvot of the Hag. When you do these things, how can you access the special power of Purim? And Purim is a day that whenever you ask, you cannot be turned away. It's like whatever the poor ask, they are not turned away. Whatever you pray for, nobody will be turned away. So it's a busy day, but please take a few moments to sit down with yourself and meditate on this idea of, where is my self-sacrifice? How can I sacrifice my um, so-called spirituality, my uh, need for claim and fame and being important and being holy? What changes can I make to access this place? In a class that I gave this week, one of the women said, I have no time for that. I have to send 20 mishlochei manot. I have to send food baskets to everybody who sends me a food basket. And I said, Okay, that's exactly the place where you can find your Mishirut Nefesh. So your self-sacrifice. You have this internal need to give to everybody, but then you forget that you also have to celebrate Purim. So how about you give up this quote-unquote holiness of sending to everybody and concentrate on having a relationship with God? That's self-sacrifice for this woman because it harms at such a price. It is so hard for her. And for somebody else, it would have to obviously the opposite. Somebody else who is very committed to their own holiness and their own relationship with God, but they're not so 
mindful of other people. For them, real self-sacrifice will be to go out of their zone and give more mishlochim or not. We each need to find what is it for us that requires a change, requires going out of our comfort zone and give up our um, so-called holiness to do the really right thing. And with this, I would like to bless you that you should have an amazing, amazing program. It should be happy and meaningful and you should be able to connect to these wellsprings of holiness brought down to us by Esther Hamalka and Mordechai Yehudi, and that we should have real miracles. And I really hope that after this Purim, we will come back to a place where there will be no war, there will be more and more refugees, people will not be running away from bombs and shells and fire, and that the world will come back to become a beautiful, holy place uh, of peace and prosperity for everybody. So, with this, I am signing off, and this was Leah Aroni with news from the Torah. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.